0: Good morning, you braved the cold, I'm proud of you. I'm Jason, and this month we're talking through our community mantras. If you've been here from the beginning, you might have heard these before. But what happened is not too long ago, South Bend City Church was like a figment of my imagination and something we just started dreaming about. And quickly, uh, people started asking, well, what's it gonna be like, right? Like, what's this thing actually gonna be like? And it seemed important that we find language for things that are deeper than style. Because if you don't have language for something deeper than style, you're probably going to end up just talking about style, right? Which didn't feel like the right place for us to begin. So we, we, we reached for language that would describe a, a deeper picture of what we feel called to as a church. And the way that we're going to follow Jesus together in the moment where we find ourselves in the place where we find ourselves. These are the mantras. So we have four of them, and we're reviewing them and refreshing them this month. Uh, It's been about a year since we taught them. So here's the good news. If you're new here and you're wondering whether you really want to find a home with this community, this is a really good time to be here because we're trying to be pretty clear about who we are and where we're going. And you you might hear this and think, this is where I want to be. Awesome. You might hear it and think, not for me. That's great, too. Like, clarity is always a good thing, right? Uh, If you've been around for a bit and you've heard these things, this is still good news for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, because we're not looking for novelty These are actually meant to shape our lives together and the lives that we live every day. It's important for us to return to them. But secondly, we're not just going to review. We're going to refresh and we're going to bring a a little bit of uh, new ideas and new perspectives to the mantras this year. So uh, we're in good shape. Last Last week we talked about sushi, not fish stew, which is a way of talking about intentional simplicity. And when we talked about that, uh, by the way, we found out that we had a bit of a miscommunication with our printer, and I think it was during the 10:15 that we ran out of those cards. So I'll reiterate what Angela said. After the gathering, if you didn't get a sushi card and you'd like one, uh, they're on the tables right outside the curtains on your way out. Uh, but in the process of talking about sushi, not fish stew, we raised three questions. Like, Who are you, and what do you have, and what are you here for? I think clarity on those questions leads to the kind of fierce simplicity that we're aiming for. But a lot of us find ourselves wrestling with those questions. Who are you? And what do you have in your life or in your hands? And what are you here for? I think those are deeply spiritual questions. Uh, When you feel like you don't know the answer to those questions, they can shake you a little bit. And I proposed that this week's mantra might help. Now, uh, I think those questions will lead to very individual answers, and when you find language for who you are, it'll probably be different than the language I have for who I am in all sorts of ways, right? But I think there's a shared baseline that we can start with that will help all of us, and that's where we're going to go with today's mantra. So we're going to jump in. You guys ready? Awesome. Let's go to Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. This is in the first page of the Bible. This is in the middle of God doing all that creating stuff that God does, right? And here we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We want to start right here. Now, sometimes if you're trying to get to the heart of a text in the scripture, it can help to know a little bit about the world around the scripture. Because if you just read this, this passage in a, in a vacuum, you, you don't get all the way to what's being um, really driven home by Genesis 1:26 and 27. So, for example, it turns out that the world around Genesis 1 is a world where lots of people assumed that a person could bear the image of God. It's not a new idea when Genesis talks about a person bearing the image of God. Let me show you some examples. So this comes from other cultures uh, preceding the writing of Genesis 1, where we read, for example, from one ancient Near Eastern community, a text that says, the father, my lord, the king, is the very image of Bel, and Bel is their name for their God, and the king, my lord, is the very image of Bel. Or how about this, in this next text, Marduk is the name of this people's God, And the ascription speaks to a human being and says, O king of the inhabited world, you are the image of Marduk. Or how about this guy? You might remember him from the cover of National Geographic when you were in middle school like me, right? Uh, This is King Tut, the Egyptian pharaoh whose tomb was discovered and had within it all these incredible artifacts and riches from Egyptian culture. King Tut's full name is Tutankhamun, and it literally translates to the living image of the god Amun. So we have lots of examples of communities from the ancient world that believed that a person could bear the image of God, which begs the question, what's interesting about Genesis 1? What's revelatory about Genesis 1? Is there anything in this text that God had to break in and help us discover? And if you listen closely, you might have observed a possibility. I'll I'll offer it to you like this. Lots of communities believed that a person could bear the image of God in the ancient world, except all of those other communities only believed that one person could bear the image of God. It was a man, and he was the king. And Genesis 1:26 and 27 comes along, and we hear God saying, let us make humanity to bear our image. Let us make men and women to bear the image. The revelatory, radical word of Genesis 1 is not that a person could bear the image of God, but that every human being is a bearer of the image of God. The radical word in Genesis 1 is that every human being is called a bearer of the image of God. And by the way, the Scriptures never revoke that assessment. There's never a moment in the Scripture later where the text says, oh, we were wrong about that, or humans have done so much to screw that up that we can no longer say that about humanity. The Scriptures never revoke that assessment. Now, they complicate it because there's other things that are true of us, too. But the scriptures never revoke that assessment. This means you have never looked into the eyes of a person who doesn't bear the image of God, who doesn't carry that sacred worth, that holy weight in the world. Like in this community, we should say out loud, this is a word for the Latinos and the Latinas on the west side and the yuppies on sunny side. This is a word for the townies. This is a word for the domers. This is a word for Republicans and Democrats. This is a word for left and right. This is a word for anyone who was watching CNN last night, a word for anyone who was watching Fox News last night, and it's even a word describing the people who are behind the cameras whose faces you are looking at as your blood boils because you've never looked into the eyes of a person who isn't called a bearer of the divine image, a sacred object in the world. This is... uh, This is radical stuff that comes from the very first page of scriptures, and it's one of the things that we've tried to claim as a community. And if you are wrestling with who you are or what you have or what you're here for, I want to propose that a starting point would be to ask yourself, what does it mean to raise your head and know the dignity that you have as a bearer of the divine image for the world? Now, uh, as a community, we've tried to wrap this up in um, a simple mantra that we carry with us. And the mantra is this, everyone an icon. An icon here is not a word for an image on your phone screen, but a word for a sacred image. Everyone an icon. And we mean this not just to be like a value that shapes our church, but like a portable prayer that could go with you into your everyday life. And earlier this past year, I actually got a little glimpse of how somebody in our community is taking this prayer into their work, and it was really moving for me. So uh, Chad's a member of our church here, and Chad's also a member of the Clay Fire Department. And Chad invited me to spend some time uh, with him and the other members of the fire department. So I was there at their station for a day and went out on some calls and learned about their work. And while we were together, he took me to the engine that he's in charge of and he showed me his helmet. Let me show you this, that's that's Chad's uh, fire helmet. That's the clay fire shield in the front. And you'll notice there's a piece of paper tucked behind it. And he wanted to show me that. So he pulled it out and he unfolded it, and this is what I saw. Those are our four mantras uh, there on the page. And uh, what I heard from him was that he especially carries that with him because of everyone an icon. Because he knows that when he gets called, it's usually at a moment when a person's dignity is most at stake. You know, they get called not just when there's a fire, but when somebody's fallen and they can't get up, right? It might be a person who is getting out of the bathtub, and, you know, they're indecent, and they slip. And they have to call strangers to break into their home to lift them up. And Chad carries that mantra with him to remind him that it's in those moments that he's there to honor the sacred image of people in those vulnerable moments when he's called. You know, they get called when people have made the worst decisions of their life or are having the worst day of their life. They get called when somebody shouldn't have gotten behind the wheel of the car and was in no condition to drive. And he carries that mantra with him to those worst moments in people's lives, hoping that some way he can be a representative who sees the sacred worth of those people in their worst moments. I was so stirred up by that. I thought that was really beautiful, right? I also thought, We got to do better than that card. So let's pass out the new cards. Let's pass out the illustration for the mantra. Uh, This is our second card that we want to share with you. Um, The artist, Scott, who we commissioned here, I love the image that he created for everyone on Icon. If you look at this, you'll discover uh, a community of people who have their arms around each other, who are embracing each other, and whose heads are bowed toward each other in a posture of honor. Because that's a way of honoring someone, right? When you bow your head toward them. And so I love this image of people who are enacting this very mantra in their their little fellowship there, right? And then on the back of the card, you'll see this little summary that helps us remember this. The first word in the Bible about humanity is that we bear the image of God. It's an assertion of profound dignity, and it's our starting point with every person we meet. So I would encourage you, like, tape this to your mirror, or put it in your uh, vehicle, or carry it in your wallet, or uh, tape it to your locker door, or pin it to your cubicle, maybe put it someplace where it can both encourage you and call you out to live up to this in some unique way. Now, the first time I taught this, I told a story about my friend Jenny uh, from my job in high school. I'm going to revisit the story, but we're going to take it further today. So hang with me a little bit. This might be reviewed for some. Uh, When I was in high school, I worked at Barnes & Noble, which is the best job in the world, except for this one, obviously. Uh, So I'm working at Barnes & Noble. Mostly I'm on the book side, but occasionally I would get called into the coffee side of the operation when things were hectic in the cafe. So there's one day when I'm at the espresso machine making drinks. My friend Jenny is to my right at the cash register receiving people's orders. And a thing happens, which happens often when you work in service or retail, that you may not know about if you've never worked in service or retail, which is a person was a monster. I don't know if you know this, but just beneath the thin veneer of etiquette in our society, people are terrible. And it mostly shows up in places like service situations, retail situations. So I'm making espresso with my friend Jenny. By the way, Jenny is amazing. Jenny is bright and articulate and intelligent. She's warm, but not too warm because you don't want to make best friends with a barista, right? You just want to have a good moment and then move on. She's just the right amount of friendly. She knows what she's doing. She knows the menu inside and out. You should be thrilled if Jenny is the person taking your order at our cafe. And yet this woman walks in, and for absolutely no reason, she just decides to treat Jenny like crap. Like, if you haven't seen this in person, you would be amazed at what a human being could do in a standard retail interaction. It's her body language, it's the things she's saying to Jenny, it's the way she's saying these things to Jenny, and it goes on and on. It's like sadistic. Like, she is exercising a surgical strike against Jenny's dignity for no apparent reason. And I'm sitting over here, and by the way, when I've told this story, I refer to that lady as Snotty Lady. And I'm thinking, as I make Snotty Lady's coffee, how much snot can I get into her coffee, right? (laughs) Which is why it's not just immoral, but bad ideas to treat retail people badly, right? (laughs) But I'm there making her coffee, observing this whole situation where Jenny's just being disparaged for no reason, where her dignity as a human being has never dawned on the woman across the counter, right? And watching all of this unfold when manager lady walks in. a manager lady was awesome. We loved working for this particular manager. She was about our mom's age. She she was like, she was... uh, sharp, and she was strong, and she wouldn't put up with much, but if you came against her team, she had your back. So I'm watching all of this, and snotty lady's unloading on Jenny, and snotty lady doesn't realize that manager lady is standing right behind her, observing this attack on Jenny's dignity. Snotty lady just keeps unloading, but she takes a minute to catch her breath so she can Throw more Jenny's way. And as she takes her breath, manager lady sees a moment of opportunity. And manager lady speaks over the shoulder of snotty lady to Jenny and says something that's true that snotty lady didn't know. Manager lady says, hey, Jenny, heard you got into Harvard. You excited? Snotty lady turns on a dime. I can't decide if the way she treated Jenny before that moment or after that moment was more disgusting to me. But after she heard that Jenny's going to Harvard, it's like all of a sudden she discovered there was a human being across the counter from her, right? All of a sudden it's, oh, Harvard, oh, excellent, oh, wonderful, darling. And I'm sitting over there making the coffee thinking, shut up, snotty lady, right? (laughs) Now, one of the reasons I tell that story is because of what you're feeling right now. If there's something stirred up inside you, if there's something inside you saying no, if there's something inside you saying, we don't like that. We don't stand for that. We don't want to put up with that dismissal of human being because of the job they have or where they're located socially. If there's something inside you stirred up right now, that's one of the reasons I tell that story. I mean, my conviction is that if it's true that every human being is a bearer of the divine image, then that means that every act of disrespect is not just an act of disrespect, but an act of desecration against the holy sight. And that when you feel that thing inside you saying no, it's not just manners or etiquette, but that it's something like the Spirit of God raising up a resistance inside us that says no, we're not here for that. We're not here to stand for that. We're not here to put up with that attack against the image of God. So I, sh- I share that story because I think we should pay attention to that thing that gets raised up inside us. And I think as a church we should recognize that sometimes churches are the worst at this. Sometimes spiritual communities, religious bodies are the worst of this. Sometimes what churches do is they look at a person and the first thing they see is an object for conversion. Right? <laughs> I see you as a problem that needs fixed. Maybe you've felt that sometime. Maybe you walked into a community or you had some friends who had a religious identity and you realized the way they saw you was as a problem to solve, an object to convert. Sometimes communities like this are the worst at drawing lines of insiders and outsiders. And you can find different uh, flavors of Christian communities with different definitions of righteousness, but we all have these definitions, and then we look for who's in and who's out and who's good enough and who's not and who's high enough on the ladder of accomplishment and who's not. And we all sort of have these temptations to create these hierarchies and these lines of insiders and outsiders. And we would be foolish if we thought that like, as a church we're immune to those temptations. So as a church um, we are trying and have tried from the beginning to proactively move in the other direction. Away from Accidentally or intentionally disparaging the image of God in people, and toward honoring that image. So, a few ways that we have and and will try to do that. A little update, like on the life of this community. One thing you might have noticed is that we fiercely avoid tribal labels around here as a community. Um, I'll have people come up to me after church, and they'll say, "Like, I, I, I need to know the answer to this question or this question about this church." And I've been all over the website, and I can't find what I'm looking for. And sometimes, if I press a little further, I'll realize you're looking for one of those magic words, right? One of those tribal labels that tells you like where we fall on a continuum, left or right, or on a particular theological question. Now, we're not trying to be coy. We're not trying to obscure things. I always tell people like, what you see is what you get around here. Really, we're not hiding anything. <laughs> we don't have secret rooms where we meet and we have secret identities that we don't talk to you about. Really, um, we've tried to be pretty plain about who we are and where we're going. But I'm really concerned, and like, just name your label and the way that communities use them. I can think of labels like conservative, or liberal, or traditional, or progressive, or evangelical, or not evangelical, or whatever. And I think that the problem with those labels is they make 3 dimensional or they make one-dimensional something that's three-dimensional, because the community is this complex, diverse thing. And I think that the minute we start using those labels is the minute that we might start becoming tribal, and we don't want to do that. So if you've wondered why we don't use some of that language around here, it's fiercely intentional. Uh, also, um, as a church, we're quite convicted about the thing I'm about to say, which is when we see in the world the ways that uh, race, for example, is a line that's drawn that creates a world where people of certain colors of skin don't experience the same opportunities that people with other colors of skin experience, we're probably going to talk about it. Uh, we're not trying to be divisive, um, But like, if you're gonna try to heal the plague, you probably better talk about the plague, right? And we have a world that is sick with racial injustice and we're gonna talk about it from time to time. When we see um, women who have learned their whole life that men are gonna do whatever they want to do to them and they're gonna use their power and their position to do that, we're probably gonna talk about that sometimes. When we see that people with a minority sexual identity, anyone who identifies as L or G or B or T or Q, when we see the ways that they are abused and that people have tried to destroy them and come against them. We're probably gonna talk about that from time to time. We're not trying to be controversial, we're not trying to be divisive, but we're trying to live up to this thing that we feel called to because it has to be specific. We can preach all day long with vague extractions about the fact that everybody bears the image and never name any of the actual difficult things that are happening in the world, that are disparaging that image among our brothers and sisters, sometimes we're gonna talk about those things. Um, I wanna remind you if you've been around here for a bit that I preached the longest sermon of my life in August on sexuality. And if you weren't here for that, I think you should listen to it. Uh, Go back to our podcast, look for August 26th. The episode is called A Sacred Conversation, Sexuality. And I did a lot of work in that sermon to talk specifically about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and how this community is thinking about that question. Um, If you weren't here, again, please go listen because I can't do justice to it today. But we said out loud, Southland City Church, A, has to be a place where we assume the best about each other and where we can disagree in good faith. And I love that we have a community with differing perspectives on questions of some of these sexual ethics issues here. I really sincerely believe in that. But we also said that anybody who identifies as L or G or B or T or Q, deserves to know what they can expect from this community so they don't get blindsided when we sort of bar them at a certain level of involvement without ever naming it from the stage. And so we've said out loud and explicitly that anyone who identifies as L or G or B or T or Q will not be prevented from belonging and serving and leading in any way uh, on the basis of who they are. And uh, just to bring even further clarity, I said out loud then and I'll say again, like. If you're gay and you want to get married, I'd be honored to do the wedding. Now, some of you who haven't heard that from me or this community before uh, might be asking lots of questions right now. Well, what about this? What about this? What about the Bible says this? Yep, go back and listen to that 80-minute sermon uh, where I tried to show some of our work there. Um, But it's important for this to be particular for us, not just a vague idea about honoring one another. But frankly, I'm in it to take some risks uh, for the ways that we feel called to do these things. Now, I said, um, you know, we want to talk about race and we want to talk about the world that we've created for women. One thing that we will do better in 2019 than we did in 2018 is you won't just hear my voice talking about those things. We're going to do better in actually learning from people of color and from women in the lineup of our year as we gather together. Uh, It's just one of those reflections where we look back on the year that we've had and we think we can do more. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, By the way, though, it's not just in gatherings where we're trying to honor this mantra. Um, there's a practical sort of everyday space where we are looking to be together and look each other in the eye and honor one another with the weight that a person carries as a bearer of the divine image. And it's the car that was on your seat when you walked in. It's tables. Tables are not rocket science. They're simple. Uh, But tables are where we commit to a small group of people for a period of time to share a meal and intentional conversation uh, showing up roughly twice a month. We don't slip a curriculum into tables. We don't slip a Bible study into tables it really is a place to simply meet one another on the sacred ground of a shared meal and see what happens as we trust one another at the table. If you're interested in joining the table, we would love to welcome you into that. A week from now, after the 1145 gathering, we're going to have an informal informational meeting for anyone who might want to join a table or who might want to host a table. So that week, you could come to the 1015, go get some brunch and come back for the meeting. Or you could shift your, your gathering attendance, come to the 1145 and just stick around. Or you can come to the Thursday night gathering, which will have the same content as that Sunday. And uh, on Thursday, by the way, reminder, during the month of January, uh, we're doing dinner from 6.30 to 7.15 before the gathering. It's free, just come on in, grab a bite, and then we'll do our gathering, and then you can stick around for a meeting about tables. Uh, But tables are a way that we try to live this out concretely in a way that's harder to do in a big, big room like this. Now, uh, I brought up the story about Jenny again, uh, not just to reinforce that feeling you have, but to take it a little further, so uh, this sermon about everyone an ICON, the one that I preached a year ago in January to this church. Well, then later last year, I was in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and I was at a church called Redeemer Central, this beautiful community in the heart of Belfast. And they asked me to preach, and I shared the same sermon, everyone and ICON, the same sermon that I shared last January here. And I told the same story about Jenny and snotty lady and manager lady at the beginning of the sermon. And I gotta be honest, like when you get up in front of a new audience as a preacher, especially when it's international, you're not sure how it's gonna go, but then like you feel like you find some traction with the community. And I'm getting to the end of my sermon in Belfast, feeling pretty good about this thing, when somebody raises their hand. And like I I didn't know if they'd do that, and my buddy Dave, who leads the church, I couldn't find him anywhere, like because I felt like it would probably be his problem, whatever was about to happen, right? But I couldn't find Dave, and it's kind of awkward and obvious that this person is raising their hand and looking at me in the church while I'm trying to wrap up my sermon. And so I interrupt my sermon, and I call on this person. And they ask me a question that just levels me. In four words, they catch me completely off guard and cause me to reconfigure the way I see the whole story that I have just told. So I preach about Jenny and Snotty Lady and Manager Lady, and I preach about everyone an Icon, and I preach about the ways that we come against each other, and I preach about Genesis 1 and all this stuff, and I get to the end of my sermon, and this person raises their hand, and I call on them, and they just say, what about Snotty Lady? I know, right? Like, think about the hypocrisy of what I had done. I have been preaching for 35 minutes about the fact that you have never looked into the eyes of a person who doesn't bear the image of God. I've been preaching against disrespect. I've been preaching against disparagement. I've been preaching about left and right and enemies and how everybody's a bearer of the image of God. But I told a story with a woman I called Snotty Lady. I created a story with a hero, who's manager lady, and a victim, who's Jenny, and a villain who's snotty lady. And it's a true story, but the reason the story works is because it has a victim and a villain and a hero, right? So I'm there toward the end of my sermon and this person raises their hand and they simply ask me, what about snotty lady? And frankly, honestly, I thought, crap. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Because first of all, you know, snotty lady's not going anywhere, right? There's this moment when people come to Jesus about the poor, and Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. We will always have snotty lady with us. You know that, right? She's not going away. She's not going anywhere. I think the real question of that story is, what about snotty lady? Right? I want to press just a little further into that today. Um, Tomorrow, our community will remember the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And we'll both remember that life and legacy, but perhaps more importantly, ask some questions about the work that we have to do in the year 2019 to move toward that beloved community that he was calling us to. And Dr. King was preaching at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama in November, 1957, when he said this, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who's gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat snotty lady. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job, it might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must love. That's the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It's the refusal to defeat any individual. And ever since Belfast, I've been chewing on this question, like, what about snotty lady? Because she's not going anywhere. But let me go even further with this. Uh, One of the mysteries at the heart of Christian spirituality is that we call Jesus the image of the invisible God. And that when we see that story where Christ arrives in flesh and blood, that we brought our violence against him, that we brought our worst energies against him, and that somehow the things that came against Jesus, one of the mysteries in this faith is that somehow the things that came against Jesus came from us, from all of us, past, present, and future, that we brought our worst against him. In fact, it turns out it's not just that snotty lady's not going anywhere, but that we've all been snotty lady. (laughs) We all keep being snotty lady because we too have disparaged the image of God and others, we too have disrespected that sacred worth in somebody else. We too have drawn lines of one sort or another, left or right, conservative or liberal, progressive, traditional uh, neighborhood, wealth, economics, the member of your family that you just can't stand. We've all drawn lines. We've all been snotty lady. We've all looked down upon. We've all condemned. We've all tried to throw away people or kinds of people who don't fit the world that we want. But snotty lady is not going anywhere. And we have been snotty lady from time to time. And at the center of this faith is the conviction not just that Christ was the image of the invisible God and not just that we brought our worst against he who bore the image of God, but that in the moment where we brought our very worst, he didn't choose to defeat us. He didn't choose to come against us. He chose to lay everything down to give everything away to respond in love that would cost him everything. Uh, A letter in the New Testament called Colossians chapter 1 says this The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shut on the cross. So peace has been made for snotty lady. And peace has been made for you and for me. Um, there's another mystery at the heart of Christian spirituality that also shows up in this big idea. Uh, Do me a favor, look back at these cards for a moment. I told you that we have three people embracing one another in a community, right? And their heads are bowed toward one another in a sign of respect or honor. That's all there in this image. But if you look at it again, you might also notice those three circles form the ancient symbol of the Trinity, There's this other peculiar mystery in our faith, which at some point we'll teach uh, about at depth, and I'll be really excited about that, and I hope you will be too. Um, But we see this other mystery that I'm referring to, for example, in our creed, which says this. We believe in God the Father Almighty, and we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And one of these mysteries at the heart of Christian spirituality is that somehow God is a community. We call God a, a trinity Somehow God is a community of three and one. And if we're here to talk about bearing the image of God and God is a community, then don't you know you cannot bear the image of God alone? You cannot bear the image of God alone. And it may actually be in the space between you and your enemy. It may be in the space between you and the people that you've ruled out. It may be in that sacred space that the image of God wants to manifest itself in the world. And so as we return to everyone an ICON today, uh, I'm proud of this church. I think we've done some brave and difficult things in our young history together. But I think we just, we better watch out, right? Because the minute we think, aren't you glad we are the ones who get this right? I just think that's the minute that we are in very serious danger of missing the heartbeat of this thing and making enemies all over again. Next couple of weeks, are the last two mantras that we have are really the way that we understand, like if, if you hold this word about your own life, that you're a bearer of the divine image, but then you also look at the life you live in the world that you've helped create, and it doesn't look entirely like a world where the divine life is out there, right? Um, it's really about the way that we see ourselves growing back into that thing which has always been true of us, that we might have lost touch with. So we have two more mantras uh, that are really about the life that we live as we grow further into this promise together. Uh, So don't miss that. Don't miss the tables meetings after our gatherings next week if you want to be a part of that. And if you're able, will you stand to your feet? I want to share with you one more brief word from Colossians. This is a little later in that same letter that we read earlier where we read this. You've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, listen, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. There is no tribal line that divides any of us from any of us in this fellowship that we call Christ. But Christ is all and is in all. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.